Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi from Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Renisa Mowani, the author of Across Oceans of Law, the Kumagata Maru, and Jurisdiction in the Time of Empire, published by Duke University Press in 2018. Renisa Mawani is a professor of sociology at the University of British Columbia. And by discussing her book, Across Oceans of Law, we will shift our gaze from land to the world oceans to follow the Kumagata Maru ship. By learning about the journey across the Indian Ocean, the Pacific, and the Atlantic, we will rethink freedom of the sea, and its history through what Professor Mawani proposed as oceans as method. Speaking from Vancouver, the unceded uh, territory of the Squamish nation, welcome Ranisa to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Thank you so much, Ahmed, for inviting me. Thank you. Um, can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself? Where did you grow up? Where did you uh, went to school? How did you become interested in your field of study and any influential mentors that you had? So I was born in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, my family was part of the late 19th century migration across the Indian Ocean from Gujarat to Mombasa and then to various uh, towns um, and cities, including Nairobi. Um, and my parents moved to Canada in the early 20th century, partly out of personal concerns, but also very much influenced by uh, Idi Amin's expulsion of Indians from Uganda. Um, so I never really thought much about uh, the Indian Ocean as a child or as an undergraduate student or graduate student. Um, I was also always very interested in histories of colonialism um, but I, as I sort of reflect back, I realized just how much my um, scholarly inquiries have been shaped by these histories of migration. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me was that uh, histories of colonialism were written in such narrow ways. Um, so the literature in Canada and the U.S., for example, was focused on um contests and struggles between Europeans and indigenous people. And then there was a whole separate field of uh, Asian migration histories. But listening to my parents talk about their time in Kenya, I was well aware that the British moved people around all the time. And I was curious as to why so few scholars thought about indigenous people um, and indigenous dispossession from land and water and migration especially uh, the migration of um, Chinese and Indians as part of this, what Louise, Mary Louise Pratt terms the contact zone. 
So it was only much later as I began thinking and writing about oceans that I realized just how much we're missing by approaching colonialism in such narrow ways. Um, I'm a product of the Canadian uh, educational system. I did all my degrees in Canada at Simon Fraser University, and uh, I did my PhD at the University of Toronto. And uh, I was very fortunate to work with some really amazing scholars um, who taught me to think across disciplinary boundaries, across history, philosophy, and law. And these are very important lessons that have really shaped how I approach my own thinking and writing. Fascinating. I, I don't know about your background uh, and your connection to East Africa. We will be talking about uh, that episode, actually, uh, in the next couple of episodes, we will have uh, authors talking about the experience of South Asian descent um, in East Africa. Um, your book is very rich, and I would like to know um, from your first book, Colonial Proximities, uh, Cross-Racial Encounters, and Juridical Truths in British Columbia between 1871 to 1921, uh, published in 2009 by University of British Columbia, to your latest book, um, across oceans of law. Um, how did that first book project lead you to your latest book? How did you become interested in writing about oceans, race, empire? Um, how did the idea develop? And what was the research process and writing like? If you can share with us. So my first book, Colonial Proximities, focused uh, very much on land, labor, and law in British Columbia. And the project actually began as my doctoral dissertation at the University of Toronto, um, and was really focused on um, examining the colonial contest through the colonial state's efforts to dispossess Indigenous people from their land, to uh, reinvent Indigenous people as laborers, um, and to recruit Chinese migrant labor to build the infrastructure of uh, British Columbia. I was really interested in examining these seemingly contradictory processes, so the state's efforts to create a white Canada on the one hand, and how this relied on the uh, territorial dispossession of Indigenous peoples, but how it also required uh, the recruitment of, of Chinese labor. Um, you know, this project was very much uh, focused on thinking about the relationship between Chinese migration and um, Indigenous uh, struggles over sovereignty and against territorial dispossession. Um, so I wasn't thinking about oceans at all, but as I was going through um, archival records and historical records and thinking about Vancouver or British Columbia in relation to the rest of Canada, I realized just how central oceans actually were and how thinking from the sea might actually change how we think about historical processes. So I was really struck by um, the fact that, you know, Vancouver, that Canada follows this kind of westward expansion narrative that um, that is very common in North America, um, you know, that the West was the last place, the sort of last frontier to be settled by um, Europeans. And yet when I looked at shipping records or when I looked at discussions about uh, port cities, I was struck that Vancouver wasn't actually this, you know, designated as this frontier outpost, but it was really a bustling international port city. Um, and so in some ways, I took these insights with me as I began working on the Komaga Tamaru. 
um, I was really intrigued um, by, you know, thinking through and with maritime worlds, um, thinking about what it meant for this ship to actually arrive in uh, Vancouver, which was this very vibrant uh, port city, um, and how that might actually shape or reorient our thinking about this particular historical event. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start. Let's turn now to the book and its chapters. The book consists of five chapters with an introduction and an epilogue. The introduction, beautifully titled "Currents and Countercurrents of Law and Radicalism," and this uh, introduction you wrote, uh, redirecting the optics from land to sea and placing the Pacific, Atlantic, and Indian Ocean into much-needed conversation. The book foregrounds the spatial and temporal coordinates that join seemingly disparate histories and geographies of the British Empire. Can you tell us about your approach and method in writing a colonial legal history across the ocean? Sure. So I, this was actually a very long uh, project. I actually started working on Across Oceans of Law in 2009. And initially, I planned to write a book that explored what happened to the ship and its passengers after it reached uh, the Hooghly River just outside of Calcutta. But the more I thought about it and the more, uh, you know, I thought about the the ship as a a central part of the story, I realized um, that, you know, this was needed to be very important. And it took me in all these different directions. So... Um, archivally, the book draws on research from multiple archives in Vancouver, Ottawa, London, Glasgow, and Delhi. And I drew from government correspondence and reports, law and legal cases, newspaper articles, and also shipbuilding and shipping records. So one of the uh, archives that I went to um, in Glasgow uh, was where all of the shipping records from uh, Connell and Company were kept. Um, and I think one of the biggest challenges was to really, in the sort of research phase, was to really keep all this material organized in uh, a particular way. Um, as I was doing my research, I began reading widely and was really surprised uh, to see so little overlap and discussion between the Pacific Atlantic and Indian Oceans, and of course with the Mediterranean Sea. So these regions, these oceanic regions, have very rich histories, and wonderful work has been done um, on each of them, documenting these histories. Um, and then there are also scholars who've written against the kind of area studies model that um, that operates in oceanic studies. But part of what really interested me was to try to develop a way of thinking about the connectivity of oceans and how this might allow us to. Uh, develop other approaches and orientations to writing histories, connected racial histories and colonial histories, including histories of transatlantic slavery, indigenous struggles for sovereignty over land and water, um, and uh, the forced migration of, in this case, of Indian migrants. So these are, you know, some of the uh, empirical questions and some of the bigger methodological questions that really animated and continued to animate my work. Um, 
I was also very interested in thinking about how repositioning oceans helps us to think differently about law and legal studies and also helps us to foreground time over space. Um, and I'm still sort of playing with this idea of oceans as method and some of the uh, work that I'm doing now and how oceans might actually allow us to think about more than human worlds instead of just uh, focusing on the movements of, of people. Beautiful. Um, your book really foregrounds the importance of situating law and legal studies in the, in the ocean. And it's really productive uh, way of thinking about uh, legal studies. Um, uh, beside that, your book also uh, foregrounds and uncover the history of Indian migration across the British Empire. Um, can you introduce to the listeners uh, the Kumagata Maru ship and its crew and um, how, by following that ship, you were able to engage uh, Indian migration history? Sure. So the, the history of the Kumagata Maru has as I argue in the book, has largely been narrated as a history of arrival and departure. And, you know, from the time I started working on this project in 2009 until the time that the book came out in 2018, um, there's been an explosion of wonderful work done by scholars, by um, artists um, and uh, poets and um, on the Komagata Maru. And, you know, uh, most of this work is still really focused on the history of arrival and departure. And a lot of this work until uh, 2014, until the centenary celebrations of the Komagatamaru's voyage, were focused on Canada. And so I was really interested in thinking about uh, the ship and the sea um, and how these, how the ship emerges as a sort of character in the story that's often overlooked, but is really vital to how this event plays out. So turning to the sea, I argue, points to some of the jurisdictional complexities um, that the British Empire produced and that Indian migrants were caught up in and also uh, that they exploited. Um, before I say anything about the uh, the Komagatamaru and its voyage, let me just give you an example. So the ship was chartered by Gurdit Singh, who was from a village near Amritsar and also a British subject. The ship was owned by a small Japanese firm and had a Japanese captain and crew of 40. It flew a Japanese flag. The passengers were mostly Sikh, but also Hindu and Muslim and thus bound by specific religious uh, prohibitions. Many of them had been living in uh, Asian ports of call, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Manila, um, and hadn't been in India for some time. The ship traveled from Hong Kong across the Pacific to Vancouver, and in doing so, raised questions about jurisdiction, responsibility, um, and obligation. And there's there are really important aspects of the ship's passage uh, that we don't see um, that contribute to the complexities and contests around the Komagatamaru's arrival in, in Vancouver. And we can't see these, these complexities and contests fully, I argue, unless we reposition land and sea. So the ship arrives in Vancouver in May 1914. Um, the Dominion of Canada is uh, not entirely sure what to do because the ship is carrying 376 
Punjabi migrants who are all British subjects. Um, and, you know, this raises all sorts of uh, really interesting uh, discussions about uh, the role of the British Empire, about the uh, promises for free movement of Indian subjects, the place of the dominions in the empire, uh, the hierarchies of race and civilization, and also what does it mean for these men to be on, mostly men, uh, to be on this ship docked in Vancouver? Which jurisdiction are they in? Are they in the jurisdiction of Canada? Are they uh, within the jurisdiction of British Columbia as the lawyers for uh, in the Munshi Singh case argue or something else? So um, I don't, you know, so one of the claims that I make in the book is that we really need to think about maritime history and all of the jurisdictional complexities that it creates and how this leads to the kinds of struggles that Indian migrants find themselves in. Definitely. And that takes us to the first chapter, the free sea, a juridical space. Um, in this in this podcast series, uh, we have talked about the longer history of India, Indian seafaring, commerce, and mobility. So can you tell us uh, what does uh, the Kumagato Maru, along with its mariners, as a historical watershed, illuminate about the uh, imperial jurisdiction and its maritime expansion? So I'm going to answer this question in two ways. Um, the first is that uh, about the sort of longer history of Indian seafaring. And then the second is about, you know, what the Komagatamaru does to illuminate imperial jurisdiction and uh, maritime expansion. So Gurdit Singh charters the Komagatamaru um, in order to start a new business venture called the Guru Nanak Steamship Company. It's remarkable. He has absolutely no experience in seafaring. He was a railway contractor in Surrenda, Malaya, and also owned a small plantation where he grew coconuts and coffee um, and possibly rubber. Um, his seafaring ambitions were built on this longer history of uh, Indian seafaring that was increasingly prohibited by British imperial rule from the 19th century onwards. So what we see in this period is that shipping becomes um, a British enterprise, um, but there are increasing restrictions on Indian seafarers. And I argue that Singh was trying to challenge this monopoly, this imperial monopoly over trade, but also over travel. So by the first years of the 20th century, the Canadian Dominion had prohibited ships from carrying Indians uh, from Calcutta and Asian ports to Vancouver. Um, and so Singh is really concerned with opening uh, the movement of trade that builds on a longer history, but also uh, he's very concerned with opening mobility and travel for Indian migrants. Um, so the deportation of the Kamagatamaru essentially imposed restrictions on Indian migration um, that were not repealed until 1947 when India gained independence from Britain. So even though uh, Gurdit Singh had these very large ambitions to start this uh, steamship company and the, you know, the Komagatamaru would be the first ship. They would carry, uh, he would carry Indian migrants to Vancouver. Um, and he really believed that he was going to be successful in this venture. Um, and what we see um, as the outcome is that 
the Dominion of Canada responds with even more restrictive um, uh, laws around Indian migration that are not repealed until the time of independence. So his plan really backfires. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with um, the time at sea. So the continuous journey provision Singh believed was had been repealed and it was reenacted while the ship was en route to Vancouver. Um, and so the outcome ends up being disastrous, um, which I don't think he actually foresaw. Mm -hmm. And, and, and with chapter, sorry, yes. and with this, we see the, uh, you know, uh, an expansion of uh, maritime jurisdiction. So I argue that um, that the continuous journey provision is not just applied to land, but it is really this extension across the sea as a way of prohibiting the movement of uh, uh, of Indian migrants. Yeah, <clears throat> and in this chapter also, um, you talk about the hardening of territorial borders across land and sea. Um, so how that, that turn of the 20th century really uh, witnessed this increasing hardening of, of these uh, sp uh, spaces? And how was that documented by actors such as Rahim? If you can tell us about who is Rahim and how did he document this process, please. Sure. So Hussein Rahim is a really interesting figure. Um, he was a Hindu from uh, Gujarat, and uh, he, Changanla was his name. He uh, then changed his name to Hussein Rahim, and there are lots of um, speculations about whether he was in fact Muslim or whether he changed his name strategically. Uh, members of the Ismaili community. Um, in Canada claim that he might have been the first Ismaili to actually arrive in uh, North America and in Canada in particular. Um, so he traveled, he was a merchant, he traveled from Bombay to Kobe and then to uh, where he was working with a Parsi um, in the cotton trade and they had some disagreements and apparently he uh, left to go to Hawaii and took with him um, a lot of their uh, the money that they had um, in their business, and then he eventually arrived in Vancouver. So I'm some of the work that I'm doing now actually is trying to uh, follow Hussein Rahim's movements a bit more closely. Um, but when he arrives in Vancouver in on the Moana in 1910, he's denied entry into Canada. And it's only because he argues that he's, you know, this is just a sort of stopping point. He has a first class ticket to go to Montreal and then he's planning to cross the Atlantic to go to, um, uh, to Europe and to London in particular. Uh, the immigration inspector Hopkinson, William Hopkinson allows him to continue on his journey. But then Rahim comes back and he, uh, is, tried twice under the continuous journey regulation and both times he wins and he becomes very active in um, uh, in the socialist party he also becomes very active in challenging immigration restrictions in Canada um, and it's in this process that he begins writing this 
Uh, he's the founder and editor of the Hindustani, a paper that is deemed to be seditious and is banned from uh, entering into India. Um, and in this in this one column, um, he documents the hardening of borders that he as he witnessed and experienced them himself. Um, and he argues that you know the continuous journey provision is almost exclusively applied to the Pacific um, entry points into Canada, and he encourages his readers. Um, and Indians more generally to come from the Atlantic side. So he says, you know, if you travel the Atlantic, you'll not only save time, but you'll be able to enter Canada without being subject to the continuous journey provision. And you can take a train uh, to Vancouver or to the West Coast, if that's the place that you want to, to end up. So he's really, he is really documenting how by the early 20th century, Canada is becoming very, uh, restrictive in its um, approach to immigration, not only Chinese immigration and Japanese immigration, but also immigration from India. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like a familiar story. Uh, maybe if you think about Australia as well, you will have the same sorts of policies taking shape at this time as well. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in chapter two, the ship as legal person, um, I was thinking about the earlier experiences of maritime mobility and how ships uh, as Komagato Maru uh, really tell us a different story that came with uh, steamships. Um, so what was it like to experience maritime mobility in the time of Dao versus the time of the uh, steamships? So yes, absolutely. The Komagatamaru is uh, a steamship and it would have been a very different experience than it would have been to be on a dhow crossing the Indian Ocean. Um, we don't have a lot of, uh, there aren't a lot of records that sort of give us a sense of what happened aboard the, the vessel itself. Um, the Gurdjit Singh did keep a diary and that was confiscated when the ship arrived in um, Calcutta. And so there's only, uh, I've been able to find a couple of pages from the diary that were reproduced in uh, government correspondence about what happened um, in Vancouver. But there, you know, I've, I'm working, I just finished a short essay um, that looks at the Muslim, Hindu, and Sikh passengers um, aboard the ship and the ways in which they are trying to negotiate both sort of living quarters, um, but also the management of rations, of food, um, all of those things. Their conviviality with the crew. So there was, uh, uh, of course, a Japanese captain and 40 crew members where the saying actually becomes quite friendly um, with one of them. And so the, the essay that I, that I finished is trying to sort of document some of these, um, interactions aboard the ship itself. Uh, the, there's only one storm that gets recorded, um, that I've been able to find. And the passage from Hong Kong to Vancouver is relatively smooth. The, you know, they encounter one storm, the um, passengers are really excited about arriving in Vancouver. 
um, the there's a lot of sort of conviviality between the uh, Muslims and Sikhs in particular. There's a multi-faith Muslim Hindu Sikh um, committee that oversees the distribution of food and, uh, you know, what's happening on the ship. It's really after the vessel arrives in Vancouver um, that things start to fall apart in terms of the relationships between the people aboard. Um, and so I think that's a really interesting part of the, of the discussion in the book. I'm, I'm less sort of concerned with the, uh, just partly because it was getting too long. I'm less concerned with the kind of shifts that happen with steam, uh, and more concerned with the kinds of social relations that are produced in the way that the ship itself is organized. Mm-hmm. And you really productively think about the Komagato Maru as a racial and juridical form. And I was I was wondering if we think of the uh, ship as such, um, how was the specter of the slave present on the ship and, and the sea, as you argue in this chapter? So I should actually uh, preface my response to this question by saying that, um, you know, when I first started thinking about the ship and the sea, I was immediately drawn to the literature on transatlantic slavery because I don't think that you can actually think about a legal history of the sea or of uh, shipping unless you think about um, the Atlantic slave trade. Um, And one of the things that was really interesting to me as I started doing work on this was I, you know, and started sort of reading um, maritime uh, cases and uh, reading about maritime law was that the ship was this legal person, this legal entity um, that was personified as a feminine figure, as a woman, um, often named as such, often with, uh, you know, a, a figurehead at the very front that sometimes often a woman. Um, and as I started thinking about the ship as a legal person, as a kind of juridical form that had its own set of rights and responsibilities, I started thinking about how uh, the personhood of the slave was negated on the ship, right? That the slave becomes this non-person um, or that the figure of the slave becomes this non-person. Um, and this happens at sea through forms of racial violence, but also through forms of abstraction, including um, maritime documentation like the ledger and the logbook, um, and how um, Afri- captive Africans become, um, you know, ungendered, as Horton Spillers tells us, or, you know, listed as ditto, 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 as Nurbis, M. Nurbis Philip tells us. Um, so this is part of the sort of dynamic that I'm trying to trace in the first chapter on the ship as a legal person. Um, So how does this legal personhood, how is this legal personhood entangled with the negation of uh, the enslaved person? Um, And I, I argue that, that this personhood, non-personhood dynamic is really key to how uh, we must think about ships. Um, but I'm also really interested in how Gurdit Singh and the passengers actually formulate a critique of the British Empire and of the Dominion of Canada and their detention on the ship th- 
through these abolitionist narratives about um, slavery and that largely come out of or that emerge out of um, the deplorable and horrendous and horrific conditions aboard slave ships, right? Um, So I'm interested in how slavery is both or how transatlantic slavery provides uh, a kind of juridical formation, but is also mobilized by the by Gwerdit Singh and the other passengers as a form of critique um, of their own conditions. And I'm really um, explicit that Gwerdit Singh is not saying that, you know, what's happening to him and the passengers aboard the Komagatamaru is like slavery, but that they're being detained as slaves, um, a critique that he then takes up in later years as he writes his uh, sort of memoirs of the Komagatamaru, where he offers a very trenchant critique of the transatlantic slave trade and how Indian migration fits into that and into abolition in particular. Mm-hmm. You really imaginatively draw on the oceanic literatures of the Atlantic and, and also the Pacific. And we move to chapter three, land, sea, and subjecthood. Uh, in this chapter, um, uh, we have uh, we have arrived uh, at Vancouver Harbor. Uh, so, how was how was the ship received, and who was Ray Munshi Singh, uh, and what can his case illuminate about settler colonialism, indigeneity, and colonial law? So, the ship arrives in Vancouver after stopping uh, first in Victoria, where the passengers are searched and subject to medical examination. Um, and then it arrives in Vancouver uh, on May 23rd, 1914. And the Komagatamaru is uh, essentially uh, denied entry, right? Only 20 passengers are allowed to disembark, and those are passengers who can prove previous domicile in Canada. Um, the uh, Hussein Rahim and was the leader of the shore committee, and uh, he and members of the Shore Committee hire Edward Bird, who is a uh, lawyer in Vancouver who had helped in previous immigration cases and who had also helped in other cases involving um, uh, Indians living in Vancouver. And they decide to, they present their case to the immigration board um, and as to why uh, the ship and its passengers should be allowed to disembark. Um, they. Uh, this case is, of course, unsuccessful. And the case, the representative of all the passengers is Munshi Singh. So Munshi Singh is selected as the representative because he is a farmer um, and uh, he is deemed to be, you know, a, the kind of characteristic uh, a person who could... Um, represent the rest of the people aboard the ship. So the uh, bird and his uh, collaborator uh, decide that they're going to file a um, an appeal to the BC Court of Appeal and are the and the BC Court of Appeal agrees to hear their case. Um, so he so Munchi Singh is the one that uh, is um, identified as as the person, as I said earlier, who is going to represent all the other passengers. Um, and in the course of the discussion, so 
um, it's a really fascinating, fascinating case. Um, Bird and his collaborator make the argument that several arguments. The first is that uh, the passengers aboard the ship are not, in fact, Asiatics. That they're, uh, you know, that there is this long uh, connection with Europeans. That they're actually Aryans. That uh, the racial exclusions don't apply to them. That they're British subjects. That uh, the ship is actually in. Uh, the jurisdiction of British Columbia and not in Canada because of where it's located and that the passengers aboard the ship should have the same civil liberties as uh, what is extended to um, people living in British Columbia. And what's interesting is that the uh, one of the um, Court of Appeal judges raises the issue of Indigenous people and says that, you know, the primary concern of the Dominion of Canada must be Indigenous, its Indigenous habitant, inhabitants and not Indian migrants who are arriving in off the coast of British Columbia. Um, and so Indian uh, migration becomes uh, a problem for the Dominion in the words of this particular justice because of the implications that it might have for Indigenous people. Um, and the so the way that I read this in the book is to think about how settler colonialism and indigeneity become ways of excluding the passengers of the Kamagatamaru from entering into British Columbia. Um, and, you know, and this builds on some of my earlier work and some of my earlier interests about uh, migration and indigeneity. And so I'm really interested in how uh, this gets exploited by uh, uh, the British Columbia Court of Appeal as a way of excluding um, Indian migrants from arriving in Vancouver. But what we see from the sort of uh, response from, you know, um, supporters in Canada and including um, one who's writes a letter that gets republished in the Hindustani um, in Hussein Rahim's paper. But, you know, so what we see from supporters of the ship in Canada and in other parts of the British Empire is that many of them are making the argument that, well, the Dominion of Canada is actually not the sovereign um, over this, these lands, that these lands begin belong to Indigenous people. Um, so we see how indigeneity becomes this kind of um, site of contest over Indian migration, um, a way of a way that the court uh, prohibits the migration or the entrance or the uh, uh, of the passengers aboard the Kamagatamaru, but how the ship's supporters actually mobilize this as a way of critiquing the sovereignty of Canada. I really found that fascinating uh, that he mobilized indigeneity in, in the arguments. And that's a nice segue to chapter four, anti-colonial uh, vernaculars of indigeneity. So how does indigeneity functions as a form of politics that is racial, temporal, right? Because you talk about who was first and transoceanic as you examine in this chapter across uh, the Western Indian Ocean between India and South Africa. How does notions of belonging, if I may ask, figure in our understanding of indigeneity, who belongs and who doesn't? So 
when I started working on this book, I was actually really, you know, I was really interested in thinking about how um, the Komagach Maru was uh, being witnessed in other places in the British Empire. And one of the unexpected turns was how central it became in, uh, you know, some of the critiques of British imperialism in South Africa and also in India. Um, and and again, I was really uh, not expecting to see how central indigeneity figured as a kind of form of anti-colonial critique. So um, on the one hand, I think it's really important to keep in mind that um, indigenous politics are very rooted in, uh, in place, right? So we can't make generalizations between um, the kinds of... Uh, dispossessions that are directed at Indigenous people, even across Canada, um, British Columbia versus Central or Eastern Canada, um, and certainly between Canada and South Africa. But what was really interesting to me was to, to see how indigeneity gets mobilized, not as a claim to belonging, not as, you know, um, Indians saying, well, we're indigenous to this land, although that did emerge in, uh, you know, in various contexts. But I was interested in how indigeneity becomes this sort of form of a very intense form of critique against the British Empire, that the British Empire is actually, um, uh, you know, has created all of these very violent uh, legal um prohibitions against land owned by Indigenous people, um, dispossessing Indigenous people from their territorial um, uh, and not recognizing their sovereignty over lands and uh, waterways and resources. And so I was interested in how this becomes this kind of uh, mobilizing uh, framework for anti-colonialism. Um, in South Africa, we see this most uh, explicitly in um, Indian opinion in Gandhi's newspaper. Um, but we also see how the surfaces in Indian newspapers um, in the subcontinent, right? And how uh, people who are, are witnessing the struggle over the Komagatamaru are writing in and talking about, um, you know, the uh, existing owners, the original owners of these lands um, as being Indigenous people. So I was really interested in how this sort of discourse of indigeneity um, travels across these oceanic regions and becomes this kind of um, catalyst for anti-colonial politics and anti-colonial resistance. Um, and, you know, there are, I mean, the when the passengers aboard the Komagach Maru are awaiting deportation, they do say, you know, a few of them write a letter to authorities and they say that, you know, um, colonization is not just a European endeavor, but that um, British Indians should also be involved in this process and as farmers, right, and agriculturalists, and that they could have much to offer um, to the Canadian project of colonization. So we see how this sort of emerges in very different ways um, in, in this longer story and in this longer history. Mm -hmm. I know you have been thinking also about um, solidarity 
between uh, immigrants and indigenous people. I, I don't know if you have uh, developed uh, any writing on this uh, question and if you would like to share some of that. So, you know, uh, one of the really interesting things that has happened is uh, that is how this history of the Komagachimaru is being rewritten and reimagined, right? And so um, during the 2014 centenary celebrations, um, uh, Elder Larry Grant from the Musqueam uh, talked about, you know, the fact that uh, Musqueam uh, canoes probably greeted ships, including the Komagachimaru, greeted ships, and likely greeted the Komagatamaru. Um, and this is a narrative that many Indigenous people have um, offered at events related to the Komagatamaru, for example. Uh, so it's not, you know, it, it there is no sort of physical documentation, but it's a way of imagining these sort of shared histories. Um, and last year, uh, the a federal building named after um, uh, Harry Herbert Stevens was renamed uh, or unnamed, I should say. And um, there was a mural that was commissioned uh, to a, a mural on the side of the, on the back inside of the building that was commissioned. And this mural really shows, so it was um, a South Asian artist in, Toronto, who commissioned uh, two Indigenous artists to help with this sort of rewriting this history of the Komagatamaru, showing what uh, histories of solidarity between uh, Indians, especially Punjabis and um, Indigenous people might actually look like. And so it's a beautiful illustration of um, how we might reimagine these histories. Um, as histories of solidarity and as histories of shared violence. Absolutely. Um, in chapter five, the, f- the fugitive sojourns uh, of Gurdit Singh, uh, we come back to Gurdit Singh again and follow the making of his fugit- uh, fugitivity by tracking the ship from Vancouver to the Hooghly River. Uh, if you can tell us more about the condition of political, legal, and racial violence that the Kumagata Maru's voyage initiated and established following its arrival to Calcutta. So one of the really interesting things about um, what happens in India is that uh, in anticipation of the Kumagata Maru's arrival, the Indian colonial government passes the uh, ingress into India ordinance. And the ordinance is really initiated as a way to deal with the these passengers who are arriving or who are anticipated to be arriving, who are believed to be radicalized and who are planning this, allegedly planning this mutiny um, and this revolt against uh, British imperial rule in India. And so they pass this law which allows, um, which really creates a collaboration between the Indian colonial government and uh, shipping companies, right? So the uh, shipping companies are to provide a manifest to show who's returning. Um, Indian uh, migrants who are returning to India can be arrested and detained without um, charge, just suspected of being seditionists or radicals. 
And this legislation gets, this ordinance gets passed during uh, the outbreak of World War One. Um, and so the plan is, or the uh, intention is that this will be repealed six months after the end of World War One, and that's not actually what happens. Um, so what we see is that this ordinance is, first of all, used to uh, arrest and apprehend um, and detain more than 200 passengers of the Komagata Maru. Some of them are imprisoned for months uh, without charge. Um, others are detained in their villages um, and uh, are required to report to a magistrate and are you know their movements are restricted and so on and so forth. And then this ingress gets used gets mobilized as a way of uh, dealing with seditions and seditionists and radicals writ large. And the ordinance isn't actually um, repealed until 1921 when Gurdjieff Singh is um, arrested and imprisoned. So there is this, you know, uh, very um, violent form of border control that gets initiated and uh, is largely inspired by the return of the Komagata Maru. Um, and so one of the things I'm really interested in is how, you know, the Canadian government passes the continuous journey provision, which also relies very much on uh, a collaboration with shipping agents and with shipping companies. And the Indian colonial government does the same thing um, on the other side, um, through also through collaborations and uh, through consultations with shipping companies and with uh, shipping agents as a way of restricting or imposing a form of border, border control on both sides. Um, on the Pacific and also on the uh, in the Bay of Bengal off the uh, Indian Ocean. So I'm interested in the kinds of uh, the forms of racial violence that this particular uh, ordinance brings to bear um, in on you know not just the passengers but on many men and women who are not only from Punjab but also from Madras and from Calcutta. And it has very long-standing implications. So people are are uh, arrested, are detained, um, uh, are restricted in ways that affect their livelihoods. And I think we still uh, have yet to determine um, what the implications of this ordinance were in India. That's a whole different project to think about the afterlives of that ordinance as well. Um, and, and, and you talk about the present as well in the epilogue, which is raised jurisdiction and the free theory considered. Uh, in, in the epilogue, uh, you turn to contemporary struggles over the free sea and other ships and captains. So in your assessment, uh, what purpose did the land-sea divide uh, serve in colonial, imperial, and legal history? And, and how does your book remedy this chronic problem that still actually lingers in how we think about maritime jurisdictions and violence? So I end the book with the Mediterranean and with the, uh, you know, the migrant deaths that are taking place in the Mediterranean, uh, the unseaworthy boats, the the ways in which these migrant deaths are being um, determined to be the responsibility of, um, you know, um, captains who are brown and black, as opposed to 
uh, European states. And in many ways, this really echoes the journey of the Komagatamaru, where um, the fault doesn't lie on you know, the Dominion of Canada or on the colonial government in India that is imposing restrictions on movement and mobility, but falls on Gurdit Singh, who's seen as this corrupt, um, but very influential and, you know, greedy figure, right? Um, so I'm interested in, in how these narratives get sort of reproduced into the present. Um, and, you know, oftentimes when I talk about, or when I have talked about this project in the past, and uh, especially about Gurdit Singh, um, you know, the response is, oh, he was a smuggler, right? He was trying to smuggle these people into Canada, um, a narrative that is very contemporary around uh, migration. And that's absolutely not what he was. He was not a smuggler at all. He was actually trying to challenge the um, uh, restrictions on trade and mobility that the British had uh, uh, created in dividing up its empire. Um, so but one of the things that is really striking when we think about uh, what's happening in the early 20th century and what's happening today is how um, the British Empire is trying to expand jurisdiction over uh, ocean regions in the early 20th, in the late 19th and early 20th century. And what we're seeing today is how jurisdictional lines and particularly their uh, retraction become part of migration politics. So I end with the Mediterranean and with uh, deaths at sea, but we can also see this in the uh, Pacific around Australia, where Australia is saying, oh, these boats are arriving in um, waters that are not part of uh, Australia's territorial claims. Um, we see the ways in which offshore detention is happening in places that are uh, outside of uh, the formal boundaries of Australia's territorial reach. So we see how jurisdiction is still very much an integral part of how uh, migrant deaths are being um, addressed, migrant detention is being addressed today. And what's really been striking to me is, you know, there's been some uh, really important work done by the uh, Missing Migrants Project, uh, by the Forensic Architecture Project, especially Charles Heller and uh, um, his colleagues, um, and who are really taking the sea seriously. But still, in a lot of the literature on the Mediterranean and on migrant deaths, the sea seems to be quite uh, peripheral to the discussion when I think it really needs to be much more central. Before we move to our last question, uh, could you please read a paragraph from the book? I'm going to read from uh, chapter five, from the chapter on uh, the fugitive sojourns of Gurdit Singh. And I'm reading from the bottom of the page, from page 225. Gurdit Singh's movements along the Indian and Pacific Oceans availed him new opportunities to witness the racial violence of British and colonial law firsthand. The view from the sea afforded him a wider perspective from which to chart the deep entanglements between different manifestations of imperial coercion and to create a forceful critique. Indian indenture was, in, was joined to transatlantic slavery through shared objectives and juridical forms. But in Singh's account, slavery and indenture spawned additional racial injustices 
as evidenced in restrictive immigration regulations. Indentures were not only distinguished from slaves, but also from free Indians. When placed in relation to indentures and slaves, it was clear it was clear that they too were not truly free. In the case of Indian sojourners and migrants, the different colonies legislated immigration law as a standing monument to their selfishness and color prejudice and claimed. These laws were used to restrict Indian mobility across the so-called Free Sea and to exclude migrants and travelers from entering the white dominion. The repressive force of law was evident in, as evident in Australia as it was in Canada, he maintained. In his efforts to draw connections between slavery, indenture, and immigration prohibitions, Singh argued that British colonies exploited indentured laborers and rejected free Indians, and thus had not invented a new form of, of subordination. Rather, the status of Indians abroad in the Dominion's protectorates and colonies was an extension of their inferior racial standing in India under British rule. Those who have no status at home, he argued, are dis deprived of any abroad. Beautiful. Um, thank you so much for writing the book. It's really well written. It, it almost borders the lyrical, I would say, and it's really well produced with beautiful images uh, of the ship, of the crew, and it really brings the narrative to life. Um, well, Renisa, we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, what are you working on now? Can you tell us about your current uh, or your future project that you hope to work on? So I have three projects that are at, at different stages um, related to this book. Uh, the first is a project called Enemies of Empire, um, and it will be a kind of sequel to this project. Um, so I'm uh, interested in thinking about uh, the relationship between capitalism and anti-colonialism through the uh, maritime ambitions of, of Gurdjieff Singh, so he will be a continuing figure, um, and of Marcus Garvey. So I'm interested in thinking about the Guru Nanak Steamship Company and uh, the Black Star Line together um, and thinking about what made these failed projects and how, um, you know, this kind of entrepreneurial ambition of Garvey and of Singh lead us to possibly think differently about anti-colonialism. Uh, the second project is really sort of sketching the afterlives of uh, some of the um, laws and regulations that the Komagatamaru initiated, and one of them focuses on the Ingress into India Ordinance and um, how this impacted the lives of uh, Indian merchants, both in India but also in Burma. Um, and then the third is maybe a, uh, a historical novel that is loosely based on um, my own family's migration history from Gujarat to East Africa and some of the politics of uh, empire uh, and how they played out on a sort of micro scale. Sounds fantastic. We will be looking forward to all of these projects. Thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored across oceans of flow the Kumagata Maru and jurisdiction in the time of empire published by Duke University Press in 2018. This is your host Ahmed Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episodes of new books in the Indian Ocean world. <laughs>